Think Neuro podcast from Pacific Neuroscience Institute takes you into the clinic, operating room, and laboratory with doctors and surgeons who are tackling the most challenging brain diseases and disorders. Hi, my name is Anthony Effinger, and I'm your host. Today's topic is endoscopic pituitary and keyhole brain tumor surgery and the formation of PNI. Dr. Daniel Kelly talks about how he became drawn to neurosurgery, his fascination with the pituitary gland, the nuances of minimally invasive pituitary and brain tumor surgery, as well as a brief history of PNI, its focus on innovation and clinical trials, and its centers of excellence. Thanks for sitting down with me today. Hi, Anthony. How are you? I'm good. How good, are you doing? Good. Great, great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for making yourself available. Sure. So I want to know, uh, just to start off, tell me a little bit about your practice. So my practice is uh, neurosurgical practice. My focus is really in brain tumors, um, all types of brain tumors, so from the benign to the malignant. Um, and that encompasses a wide spectrum of, of diagnoses. Um, patients come in with all sorts of different neurological complaints. Occasionally, they're discovered incidentally. Someone mm. may get a scan for, say, a headache, and they discover an abnormality, and then they, they come to us. In many of those cases, we just reassure them that there's nothing that needs to be done other than uh, follow it with regular scans. But occasionally, someone gets a serendipitous scan, and they end up having, uh, having to have surgery. Oh, my. How did you, when did you know you were going to be a, uh, a neurosurgeon? Um, not too long ago, actually. <laughs> it, um, it wasn't planned, uh, actually, you know, in some instances people plan for, for years and years to think about it, but I, I came, came to it in sort of a slow, very, very, uh, methodical in some ways haphazard process, I suppose. Um, in high school, I was very interested in the biological sciences. In college, I got extremely interested in the neurosciences and actually the evolution of, of human intelligence. And um, as I was thinking about what to do, um, I was also ac actually interested in, in marine biology and um, was thinking about going and getting a PhD in marine biology. And uh, ultimately, I decided to go to med school to sort of postpone a decision. I thought there were so many opportunities <laughs> in med school you know, that I would find something that I, that I really would gravitate to. And, and I keep coming, kept coming back to the neurosciences um, and to surgery. And um, neurology, although a wonderful field, very diagnostically oriented, lots of great tools and technology, but I really like the, the hands-on and the sort of um, athleticism and art mm -hmm. of surgery. And uh, given where we are in terms of, you know, neurosurgical advances, I, I thought that, that that was really an area where I, I could be stimulated and creative for a long time and be, and be challenged. And so um, it became over, over time through med school more and more clear that, that neurosurgery would, would be the way to go. You said athleticism. I think it really is. It's a, uh, it's a feat of... Yeah, you can't be you can't be a total klutz. Um, you have to have some decent hand-eye coordination. You you have to have a certain amount of finesse. You have to have a certain um, patience is really key. Mm. And you you have to do a lot of training. You have to um, 
And have some endurance. Endurance, uh, Because yeah. a lot of our procedures are quite long. How long? And, well, anywhere a typical brain tumor operation is anywhere from three to six hours, but then some go eight to 10 or 12 hours. Oh, my. And so you need the ability to, um, to maintain focus and to remember what's, what's critical and keep the, you know, the goals of the operation in mind. Um, one of the, one of the big things also is, is sort of the, de- the decision making, you know, how, how far do you go? Because a lot of times we, we deal with tumors that are perhaps uh, very stuck or adherent to blood vessels or critical nerves or the brain itself. And you have to decide when to, when to stop. If you leave a lot of tumor behind that, that may impact the patient negatively, but if you go um, go for broke, so to speak. If you really try to take everything out, you can end up hurting patients. You can wind up with a stroke. You can wind up with uh, impaired vision that they didn't have. Um, so there's, it's a it's a very fine line, and and that that decision making is key, and you have to sort of maintain your sharpness throughout an oh, operation, yeah, yeah. so that you don't, um, you know, veer off into an area where you where you shouldn't have gone. Were you always good with your hands? Was this um, I, you know, I did a lot of sports when I was, when I was younger. I, I, um, I skied a lot. I, I played tennis a lot. I actually wrestled, uh, in junior <laughs> Valuable high. for neurosurgery. <laughs> I was a county champion at, uh, 76 pounds. Um, Fantastic. In eighth grade, uh, in, in a, in a, in Arapahoe County in a sure. suburb of Denver. You being from, from Colorado. Well, yeah, I know it well, that. yeah. So yeah, I did a, I did a lot of uh, I did a fair amount of sports and um, you know not not overly overly committed, but it was it was a it was a part of my it was a part of my life. I played tennis uh, one year in college mm. at Claremont. Mm. So there's you have a history of athleticism. Yeah. Yeah. And how is how was it for you uh, training as a neurosurgeon? Is it as rigorous and demanding and? Yeah, I trained. Um, I w- went to med school at Georgetown, and then I did my my training at GW <clears throat> from '86 uh, until '93. And you know, the training is such that um, you initially this was back in the days when there was no resident hour rules, and hmm. so oh, of course, call was really you were you spent a lot of time in the hospital. Um, and we would do stents where we were on every other night call, oh my God. which would be fairly exhausting. And there was a lot of sleep deprivation. And um, but I I liked it. I mean, I I really enjoyed it. I mean, there were days where you were you just couldn't believe you were you were getting your beeper was going off again. You know, at two in the morning, at four in the morning. If I you know, and this just interrupted sleep day after day and probably not not great for you but that that's the way um that's the way training is or certainly the way training was and i think the the thing about training is that i found that people that were really kind of thriving and into it had a realistic expectations the people that didn't have realistic expectations that they were going to maybe be able to go home and kind of live their life they weren't very happy so you knew this was going to be like boot camp for yeah i mean i think most people understand yeah. that and and so um yeah but training is a training is a very in- interesting process you know they say see one do one teach one i mean that's a that that sort of phrase is is true to some degree 
Um, and it's a, it's a very hands-on, very raw experience, you know, being at, um, trauma centers, I was, Mm -hmm. you know, you see a lot of amazing, um, kind of horrific stuff and some really beautiful stuff, people having amazing outcomes. So the, the training and neuro, the neuroscientists, particularly neurosurgery in general, there's this incredible spectrum of pathology and people going through some really, really tough stuff. And then some really amazing, amazing. Do you remember your first neurosurgery i remember one um attending uh at gw who was who was a real um kind of classic jerk in the operating room (laughs) he was a jerk to everyone he was very condescending he was um he did stuff that today he would be off the medical staff in you know a week um abusive yeah, abusive um, to the nurses, um, but a, in, in, incredibly good surgeon, um, very thoughtful, and I learned a lot from the guy. Um, yeah. I, I didn't learn his behavior. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't pack, pick that up. But um, I remember. I re, I remember doing my first craniotomy with him, and he. That means taking some bone away from the head you know mm-hmm. to get in and remove a, a tumor I, I believe we were doing doing that and he he didn't like the way i was holding an instrument and you know just gave me a super hard time for that this is like my first first year as a so my second year of training after my surgical internship yeah. and then doing my first year and um yeah he was he was hard on everyone but you know that's you just you kind of get used to that i bet you never held it that way again no, I didn't. Yeah. 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 Then how long did you practice before you became interested in uh, the pituitary gland? Well, that started when I was a resident, uh, largely due to my mentorship with Ed Laws, who um, is still practicing. Wonderful guy. Father figure to me in a lot of ways. Just a just an amazing man. Probably the perhaps the biggest name on the planet in, in pituitary okay. surgery. And um, he he was also one the editor of one of the neurosurgical journals. Back then it was called the Red Journal. And he, um, just a, a wonderful mind, brilliant, mm-hmm. um, a, kind of a renaissance man. And um, he really got me excited about the pituitary gland and pituitary tumors. And I just thought that it was such a, such a fascinating area. I mean, it's really at the at the intersection of of the of the mind and the, and the body. You know, mm. being the master gland, it controls all yeah. the body's hormones, um, and it's so small and so delicate. And in this space that's that's surrounded by all these critical structures, including the carotid arteries, the optic nerves, the brainstem, and yet it's accessible. Through the nose. Imagine that. Yeah. I was looking at you know a diagram of the brain and where this where the pituitary lives. It's 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 like the uh, crossroads of every important thing in your body. Yeah. Right. And it's the size of a pea. Is that correct? Yeah. Just about. Yeah. Lima bean, maybe. Li- on a good day. On a good day. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. what what goes wrong with the pituitary that we need to fix surgically? So the pituitary gland is a site of many. Um, Tumors, benign tumors, what we call pituitary adenomas, and they're actually the third most common intracranial tumor behind meningiomas, which is benign tumor, and gliomas. Okay. okay. And pituitary tumors are number three. And so there's a lot of patients develop adenomas, and they can cause either, um, they typically cause um, 
pituitary gland hormonal dysfunction, either they produce too many hormones, so you get an excess, say, of cortisol in your body or an excess of growth hormone or an excess of prolactin, and that causes those are all individual syndromes. Um, as they get bigger, they cause what we call symptoms of mass effect. So as the, as the tumor gets bigger, it compresses the normal gland. And so you can get loss of pituitary gland function. The gland can fail. So you can develop all those things like low thyroid, low testosterone. Women's, their, their periods can stop. They can become, men or women can become infertile. Mm. And this um, is because this is the master gland. It can yeah. so many other things. So as it's growing, with yeah. This, yeah, the out the outflow everything. the outflow signals yeah. the hormones that yeah. are supposed to be being sent out by the yeah. pituitary gland they stop or they go to such low levels you become symptomatic and you develop these pituitary insufficiencies or deficiencies. Mm. So the other the other two things that can happen is you can get vision loss because as the tumors grow they grow upward and they they hit the optic right. directly above the pituitary gland. So a, a classic you know, syndrome of um, a, of an enlarging pituitary adenoma is what we call a bitemporal visual field defect, meaning where you lose your peripheral vision because the fibers that are hit mm. classically are in the midline where they where the nerves cross, and that that's where you that's where the um, your peripheral vision in each eye that that data gets transferred back to your occipital lobe. Right. Here. Right. So. Vision loss, loss of pituitary gland function, and then headaches. And, you know, headaches are a common, obviously are very common. There's a there's sort of a, a typical type of a pituitary headache where people usually say it's in the front of the head, you know, above the nose here, kind of or above the eyes. That's kind of the classic pituitary type headache. So, yeah, so it causes those symptoms of mass effect, headache, loss of vision, pituitary gland dysfunction, and then there's the overproduction. Um, of the what we call the endocrine active pituitary adenomas, where they're making too much of something. Is an adenoma malignant or non-malignant? They're benign. Okay, they're benign. They're almost all benign. But they're in the way. They're in the way, and some of them are bad actors. So there, there are um, what they used to call atypical pituitary adenomas. They've reclassified them, but there's a subset of pituitary adenomas that are they don't really behave like a cancer, but they're they're aggressive and they're more invasive. They can get out around, say, the carotid artery. They can get out around the cranial nerves that move the eye into this area called the cavernous sinus. Um, even some of the very benign ones can be invasive. They're, they're invading into that space, and so they're very benign, slow-growing, but they're in places where we can't get them all. So then they may need not only surgery, they may need um, radiation or, in some instances, other other treatments. Is there anything that predisposes somebody? Do we know anything about the causes? No. It's just... It's it as just far happens. as we can tell. Yeah. There, there are some, some cases associated with prior radiation. People have had radiation, but that's, that's pretty rare. And um, radiation-induced tumors in the head tend to be things more like meningiomas, occasionally gliomas, other, okay. other types of... Not these necessarily. Not no. Not okay. Not so much. when so what do we, what do you do then? If somebody comes in, they've they've presented with this headache or something else like that. You've scanned them. They have a pituitary uh, tumor. Yeah. And so yeah, if they come in and they have they have vision loss and they have a a, a large tumor, say that that needs removal, then we we remove it. It's always a, is it always a surgical sol solution in this case, or you said that sometimes it's not. 
So for all of the pituitary adenomas except one type, um, if it's symptomatic, the treatment, the first line treatment is endonasal endoscopic removal. Endonasal through the? Through the nose with an endoscope. Okay. Okay. Yeah, surgical telescope using both nostrils. And the goal Maybe, is... Okay, one for one... So we, we have the we have the endoscope in one nostril, okay. and then we have instruments working through both nostrils. And the anatomy of the nose is such that if you remove a little bit of the back of the septum, way in the back that's not structurally significant, and you, you open what are called the sphenoid ostia, there's two openings into the sphenoid sinus, which is an air sinus behind the nasal cavity and right up against the pituitary gland, if you remove the back of the septum and you make those two openings into one bigger opening, then you have this big working corridor, relatively big. I was going to say. work through. Yeah. A, what, how, four how, millim- what's big for you? Well, a four <laughs> millimeter endoscope okay. um, is, the, is the diameter of this high definition, beautiful, you know, surgical telescope. And then we have these very low profile instruments that are working through both nostrils and the, the, Two surgeons are, are looking at, Two surgeons. at the monitors. It's team surgery. Why is that? Well, because you have to have someone drive the endoscope. Back in the day, we did, um, and I did it that way for many years, um, with, with an operating microscope. So the, the operating microscope came into neurosurgery in the 60s, and it really changed neurosurgery in a, in a wonderful way because, you know, you could see things better than, say, with a headlamp. As you can imagine, that this fine structures that we need oh, to see. Oh, yeah. So the surgical microscope was a huge advent, but in the 90s, people started using endoscopes. You're talking about a camera on the end of a... On the end of a stick. Yeah. Yeah. Is the stick bendy? Well, there are flexible endoscopes, okay. but the, the, the optics are so much better with the rigid endoscopes, okay. and they lend themselves very well to endonasal surgery that we use only the rigid endoscopes. Because, is that because it's a straight shot? It's a straight shot yeah. from, from the nose to the base of the skull. Okay. And and now because of the the advent of endoscopy and a number of other things, you know, we can address and remove a whole variety of tumors that are in or around the pituitary gland and all around the skull base from low down to to high up. And so all there's there's a whole spectrum of midline what we call midline brain tumors um, that we can remove through the nose now. And that that's been one of the one of the biggest um, changes um, in you know in the last twenty years. This advent of endoscopic uh, because before surgery. when you talked about the what did you call the microscope? Mm-hmm. How did you you how do you can't get that into where the pituitary you is? can't put the microscope in? But you can put a imagine if you put a speculum in the nose in a nostril. Or they used to do it under the lip. It was called a sublabial approach. So you can go in through this opening. And yeah. If you look at a skull, you can see what's called the piriform aperture. So if you know all the your nose is cartilage yeah. and skin. So if if you the old ins, the old approach was to make an incision just above above the incisors here and open up into this mucosa. If you put a speculum in, you push the septum to one side you can get all the way back to the skull base and to the to the pituitary gland. And that was the way it was done forever. That's the way uh, Harvey, Harvey Cushing did it. So through the piriform aperture, this is that's what this is called. And going back, you can imagine this is where the pituitary gland lives right here. And the optic nerves are coming out here and the carotid arteries are coming up along the side here. So it's a very, very busy high rent. Dis- high rent. But this really, you know, revolutionized... Um, 
pituitary surgery, so using using an operating microscope. But then in the in the starting in the in the mid to late nineties, um, we started using endoscopes, and um, we we certainly weren't the first to do it. There were a number of pioneers in this area, and the um, endoscopic approach over time has really won over simply oh, because you can it. see better, yeah. and as as you know, as optics have gotten better and we have high definition scopes, the view we get um, with the endoscope is is amazing. And so, but to be facile and to be two-handed micro neurosurgeons, someone has to drive the scope. Yep. And then someone has to operate. So the 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 paradigm now, the way we do this now is we have two surgeons. My ENT partner is Dr. Chester Griffiths, who's who's uh, uh, fantastic and and a wonderful surgeon and and so the majority of the cases that we do with our pituitary team my, my partner dr barkadarian is mm-hmm. is using um, this fully what we call a fully endoscopic approach for many years I was using an endoscope assisted approach we'd start with the microscope and then we'd switch over to the endoscope um, we would and and actually for brain tumor surgery which we may talk about later yeah is um, we often do endoscope-assisted approaches. We start with a microscope, and then we bring the endoscope in to look around corners. And the beauty of the endoscope is not only is it high-definition, up-close view, it allows you with an angled lens to look around corners. So you can see things that you couldn't otherwise see, and it allows you to do a lot of stuff without retracting the brain. So (laughs) we've applied a lot of endoscopy techniques into intracranial brain tumor surgery. And that's that's one of the things that we're really known for here at PNI and one of the things that we've really pushed the envelope on. But suffice it to say, this is this approach through the nose with an endoscope using both nostrils, no incisions on the face, yeah. um, is the way we remove 98, 99% of all pituitary adenomas and the way we, we remove the vast majority of a bunch of other uh, tumors that, that can occur anywhere in the midline here. Okay, okay. And the reason we can't go too far off the midline is because we have structures like the carotid arteries and the optic nerves where it's safer and better to come from above through a different approach. Now, do you take turns? Does one <clears throat> surgeon drive sometimes and one person... Yes. Really? Yeah, but, you know, the, the ear, nose, and throat surgeon, we, we don't like to let them get close to the brain. <laughs> um no, the, the reality is, is that the ENT or the otolaryngologist will drive the scope. They're really a key member of the team because they, they do the approach. Um, one of the, do, what do you mean do the approach? They do meaning, the actual, get us, they get, get a, you in there. Get us there, okay, yes. Right. And that's, a, that's a, also an, an area where we've really pushed the envelope on being very um, careful not to disturb the normal anatomy. The, the old approaches with the endoscope and still in many places, they, they um, I would say they're not necessarily very gentle on, on some of the tissues and the, the rates of people losing their sense of smell and other issues related to removing tissue um, become significant problems for the patients postoperatively. So we do um, a technique, of, of a sort of an incisional technique where we simply incise the mucosa. We want to be extremely careful to preserve olfaction, the sense of the sense yeah. of smell, and we know where the olfactory fibers are coming down. And so we we um, are very careful with the way the cuts are made. We're very careful with the blood vessel supply, and so it's sort of almost like in a series of incisions and drapes where you push everything out of the way. Then we remove the we remove the bone that we need to. 
the bone and in the um, at the back of the nasal yeah. cavity. And it's a little that's small. It's pretty small, and then um, and doing all that, uh, you know, it certainly requires you know finesse and skill, and and that's a that's a that's what Dr. Griffiths does, and and his colleagues, um, Dr. Dr. Karimi, mm. um, and Dr. Pierce. Um, but that approach, the, then getting us there is really a key, a key part. And then once we get inside the sphenoid sinus, we do the exposure over the pituitary gland or wherever the tumor is. And then we go in and take, take the tumor out. How do you get the, when you're in there, you see the tumor, right? And you're like, okay, how do you, how does it, how do you get it out? I can't tell you. It's a, that's the trade secret? Yes. Okay. For pituitary adenomas, the distinction between the normal gland and the adenoma is usually pretty clear. Um, we pay a lot of attention to the MRI before surgery. Yeah. So we, we do, uh, p- patients will get a, a high quality, high definition MRI of the pituitary gland. And it will show how the tumor is related to the normal gland and where it is in relation to the carotid arteries and the optic nerves. And so all that data we use, obviously, uh, when we go in and we, we know where to, to find it. And then um, when we we remove the bone in front of the gland, then we open the dura. Before we do that, we always listen for the carotid arteries because mm. we want to make sure we don't injure the carotid arteries as we're opening the dura, which is a very well-known complication of this, this surgery. So the Doppler probe is very helpful for helping us know exactly that where they Doppler are. Doppler probe is a listening mm-hmm. device. Yeah, it's like a long. Inside. It's like a. It's on a long, flexible tip, and we also use navigation, uh, like. It's like GPS for the brain. So we have a probe that will tell us where we are. The problem is the navigation is based off of the CT scan or the MRI, and it can be off by a few millimeters. So the Doppler probe, in terms of localizing the carotid artery, in, wow. in our opinion, is much more accurate yeah. in real time. Yeah. So because we can put it and we can direct it, and it'll tell us exactly where it is, and it allows us to do a very wide but safe opening of the dura, that covering to the brain and the pituitary. And then in, in many, if not most instances, the tumor will be, will be looking at the tumor. It'll be right there. And maybe the gland is sort of like a crescent moon yeah. or like the peel of an orange. And so then we go in with a variety of little micro instruments and we, we peel the tumor away from the gland. For the large tumors, um, we, we will t- tend to remove sort of the lower half of the tumor first to take the pressure off of the optic nerves and the surrounding structures. And then we do a sort of a dissection around the capsule of the tumor and pull it away from the gland, being very gentle on the gland, with the goal being a total removal and protecting the gland and and actually improving the function of the gland by taking the pressure away from it. So the material from the tumor comes out, you take that out of the body? We have a variety of little grasping, uh, tumor grasping forceps or biopsy forceps. We, 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 you know, gently pull the tumor away from the normal structures, it all comes out. And some sometimes it goes up up the suction, of course. Yeah, we have suction to keep the blood out of the way. And it, that suction's in there as well. Absolutely. There's yeah. a lot, so a lot of instruments are going so in usually, through this. So you have the endoscope in one nostril, yep. you have a suction in one nostril, yep. and then you have a working instrument in the other. You, every There's always a suction there because there's always oozing and bleeding going Mm. on and fluid. And we have to irrigate. Mm. We have to irrigate with saline to kind of flush the blood away to help us see better. And um, very important to keep a, you know, you can't keep a, quote, a bloodless field. But you want to keep 
as much blood out of the field as possible because it actually absorbs the light and it makes your your endoscopic view much darker. What's in your hands when you're doing this? I'm holding instruments. um, And uh, so it could be a a micro scissor. It could be something called a ring curette, where we, which is what we use to to dissect the tumor away from the gland. So what is, what is keyhole surgery? Keyhole surgery is a term that we use to describe this minimally invasive approach um, with less collateral damage to the key structures, really starting on the outside from the scalp, the muscle, the bone, the covering to the brain, and then ultimately, of course, to the cranial nerves, the blood vessels that supply the brain and the brain itself. And so it's using these minimally invasive approaches through typically smaller openings to essentially sneak in and sneak out, mm. remove a tumor um, with as, as completely as possible without um, causing any harm. And so we have developed all these approaches um, over time. And, and I, I say we, the collective we, the people that are really kind of pushing this, this minimally invasive movement um, in neurosurgery. And um, the approaches that we use... Um, are through the nose that we've talked about quite a mm-hmm. bit, the endoscopic endonasal approach, the supraorbital eyebrow craniotomy, the retromastoid approach, and these gravity-assisted approaches. And all of those allow us to get to places that you could get to, and in many places they do with a more traditional, larger mm-hmm. craniotomy. And we've really been pushing this with, um, you know, using the endoscope, using low-profile instrumentation, um, using uh, navigation. And as you do these more and more, doing, doing pituitary surgery for many, many years through the nose, you get used to working in a very small space yeah. and you just don't need much room. And the, the tradition, traditional skull-based approaches, which are still taught and talked about a lot. I was going to ask, how many, what percentage of people are pursuing the minimally invasive keyhole techniques I'd say it's more and more people are doing it. Is it is it common practice? No, because I see referrals all the time coming from some of our, um, you know, local institutions here um, where they're getting recommended these very traditional big approaches. And I, and I you know, it, it, it frankly surprises me. Those approaches are still being taught um, at a lot of the training programs. They're discussed at meetings, um, but there's this other other side. There's there's a bunch of us doing this and and pushing the envelope on this. So it's what it's year did this? What year did you start doing minimally invasive keyhole? You know, there's not some point where we just started doing it. Yep. I mean, I I've been pushing it for twenty plus years, yeah, okay. and we've and we've gotten. I would say we've learned a lot. We've gotten yeah. much better. We've published a lot. Yeah. We use these keyhole approaches for the vast, vast majority of all the brain tumors we we take care of now, and I'm including pituitary tumors. So yeah. all, the vast majority do not require, in our opinion, a big traditional craniotomy. But it sounds like other people are still doing these big traditional craniotomies. Oh yes, really? A, lo- a lot of them, yes. So. People are getting big holes put in their head to get these mm-hmm. things removed. And, you know, in many instances, the operations go very, very well. In, in our opinion, this is a, this is a, a better way to do it. It's uh, patients, uh, they, they get a, a great tumor resection um, with less brain retraction and many instances with less collateral damage. 
um, and they're out of the hospital very quickly. Mm. How quickly? How, what are we talking about? So the average is two days, but sometimes it's the day after surgery. and Two days for brain surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the majority of our patients with a you know, benign brain tumor, if you take pituitary adenomas or meningiomas, are going home in two days. Yeah, and some go home in one day. The day after surgery, you go home. Got to take it well, easy. <laughs> don't go out and uh, don't go surfing the next day, say? Dancing. Yeah, yeah. What is the recovery? I mean, how long are you sort of... So yeah. we typically tell people, um, you take it easy the first week. Plenty okay. of walking is good. Okay. Nothing too strenuous. You can be a little more active the, the second week. You can drive after two weeks, and after three weeks, you can do anything. Really? Yeah. Do you have to change your cognitive, like reading, any of that? Is that all? It's not like a concussion, you know, how they warn people now not to... No, but it, it really depends on yeah. what... It depends on what you, what you have, what kind of tumor you yeah. have, and, you know, how you were doing beforehand. Okay. That's amazing. I can't believe that, that that's what we're... Because the less time in the hospitals, the better, right? These yes. days? Okay. Absolutely. So you were at UCLA. And tell me, tell me how you came to start uh, Pacific Neuroscience Institute. So I came in 2007 after a couple of years of considering my options and seeing a great opportunity at the John Wayne Cancer Institute, which was actually part of UCLA until 1991 when the entire institute um, moved over to St. John's. It was front page LA Times News. <laughs> Apparently. So in uh, 2007, I finally moved over to the John Wayne with the idea of starting a, a brain tumor program and a neuro-oncology program. And I started, really came by myself, but was colleagues with Howard Krauss and Chester Griffiths. And over time, we, we, you know, we worked together. I brought in a junior partner, Garney Barkadarian. Chester and Howard's practice grew. And we saw the need and the opportunity to build a bigger program. And we wanted our own neuro-oncology program. Um, division, uh, neuro-oncologist. And so we recruited Santosh Kayseri, who's one of the other four founders, who I'm sure you'll talk to at some point. And so we recruited Santosh from UC San Diego in 2015. And as that happened, we started to conceptualize the, the, the idea of Pacific Neuroscience Institute and expanding into these other areas. We're starting to work with George Teitelbaum, who's one of our neurointerventionalists to develop a stroke program. And so we, and we also saw that we were doing a lot of stuff that was not necessarily brain tumor related and cancer related. And we felt the need to develop a new institute. Mm -hmm. So that's how Pacific Neuroscience Institute started. So it really sort of budded off of the John Wayne in, in a way. And we're still all part of the John Wayne and those of us that are in doing tumor work. Um, but the Institute now has, um, eight clinical centers of excellence and a research center. We have over 30 MDs. We have a bunch of PhDs. We do a lot of clinical trials. We do fellowship training. Um, And our institutes now, our centers of excellence now, really cover the full spectrum of neuroscience disorders. So not only, you know, tumors, but stroke, hydrocephalus, facial Mm. pain, movement disorders, and most recently, um, Brain health, which I think is going to be one of the most interesting. Um, what what, compri- what what's in there? What's in so within brain health? The, the initial big focus has has been on dementia and, and cognitive issues, um, but we're we're also expanding into other things like anxiety and depression hmm. and addiction. Um, we're we've we're building a program in psychedelic assisted therapies. There's a huge renaissance going on oh, yeah. in psychedelics right oh, yeah. now particularly with psilocybin and MDMA, and we're going to be part of those um, That's fantastic. clinical trials. And, and we feel that 
Um, that's just a really important for any neuroscience entity to be involved in. I, I think that that the um, that this area of psychedelic assisted therapies is is potentially the most interesting and impactful area of the neurosciences right now. It has great potential to totally transform behavioral health care um, because there's just so many people that are impacted with anxiety, depression, addiction, PTSD, and the current therapies simply, they work, but they're not great. And, and I think there was so much good science being done back in the 50s and 60s and early 70s, and it all got buried for the, the reasons we all know. But fortunately, it, it's coming back, and um, we're, we're going to be part of that. So how do you like having an institute with everybody in one building or very close to each other, and you got all this expertise? Does that help you do your specialty? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. I thank you so much for your time. It's been a delight. Dr. Okay, Kelly, thank you. Sam. Yeah, pleasure. Okay. Thank you for joining us today on the Think Neuro podcast. My guest has been Dr. Daniel Kelly. Join us every month for a new episode and learn how some of the best minds in medicine are caring for the most complex structures in the human body. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to it and please share it with a friend and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us.